Welcome to the Modern Mobility Podcast, brought to you by Modern Mobility Partners. This podcast is for transportation planners and enthusiasts who want to learn practical solutions to modern day transportation challenges. And now, here are your co-hosts, certified transportation planners, national experts, and thought leaders, Kelly Kemp and Kirsten Moat. Well, welcome to episode three of the Modern Mobility Podcast. We're back. (laughs) I am Kelly Kemp. And I'm Kirsten Moat. And we are your co-hosts. In today's episode, we're going to go through 14 steps we put together for planning for increasing e-commerce. And, you know, when I think of e-commerce, I think about Amazon deliveries and all that stuff. But I know, Kirsten, you're going to go into more detail um, on what we even mean by e-commerce. Yeah. I mean, I think when most people think about e-commerce, they think about buying products online. I think Amazon has kind of dominated the market here uh, in the last few years, but it goes well beyond Amazon. And it's it's all of your goods that are being shipped via truck. And it's all having an impact on our transportation network. But, I, you know, working from home the last year, it's amazing to me how many trucks I see coming through the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. I think Probably on average, I see at least 25 different trucks come by my house every day. Like, oh, I believe multiple it. Amazon trucks. Like, I I don't know all of the details. Then five of those are mine. Yeah. <laughs> 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 like, I don't know how they okay, schedule fair. all of mm-hmm. their deliveries and how there are so many trucks coming to the same place. Uh, you know, from the outside looking in, it seems like there's a more efficient way to do it. But Amazon mm-hmm. has kind of figured out how the logistics world and, and how to schedule these deliveries in the most efficient, effective manner, because they're making a lot of money. <laughs> I know. And, you know, as consumers, we have become quite accustomed to our on-demand shipping and our prime shipping. And and I remember when COVID first hit and all of a sudden we couldn't get our next day shipping yeah, or two day shipping. We weren't guaranteed that. And that was like shocking in my household, you know, <laughs> I mean, because everything we get, we order our groceries online. I mean, we order everything. Yeah. I mean, so. I think I think humans in general uh, have this instant gratification need. Right. That's mm-hmm. that's why. Ordering stuff online wasn't popular because it took so long to get. You wanted it then and now, so you would just go to the store. Then we became mm-hmm. accustomed to this on-demand, and everything was fine. And then when you started having, you know, disruptions in the supply chain, everybody was freaking out <laughs> and yep. hoarding toilet paper. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I just remember my nine-year-old, you know, was very disappointed in Amazon when they could not fulfill his two-day or one-day shipping needs. Yeah. <laughs> so he's ready for it to go back to normal, he said. Yeah, but now everything's <laughs> back to normal. And I got my uh, my recent purchase was a bacon press. It was same-day delivery. <laughs> what is a bacon press? It's a cast iron press that you, like, put on the top of bacon so it flattens. I don't know. You can- I have... I have one of those, but when you say a bacon press, I'm thinking of like one of those little sandwich makers. No, 
No, no, no. Okay. You're talking about the heavy yeah. iron thing. Yeah, on top. Yeah. I got one of those. Okay. I didn't know that's what it was called. Okay. Who knew? Yeah. Mine has a picture of a pig and it says bacon press. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay. okay anyways uh, we digress. trying to refrain from yeah we digress <laughs> okay <laughs> all right uh so today you know we're going to be talking about e-commerce so we've we've given a lot of examples of what e-commerce is but um to go into a little more detail according to forbes e-commerce grew 78 percent from may of 2019 to may of 2020 i would account that to more than just covid because <laughs> May May 2019 and May 2020, that was just getting into the pandemic phase. Yeah, yeah. Again, that could have been largely due to my health. <laughs> <laughs> um, and let's see, according to a recent survey by Ernst & Young, uh, 38% of future consumers, so post-COVID, intend to do more shopping online and only visit stores that provide great experiences. This this doesn't surprise me. I, I think we, every week, every month, hear about big box stores closing more stores. Um, I mm -hmm. think that is probably a direct result of people's attitudes towards their shopping experience. Sure. yeah. So, you know, e-commerce is out there, but uh, I mentioned, you know, I don't know the inner workings of the supply chain, but uh, we did find a few facts and figures about what happens after you place your order with Amazon. You, you hit buy now or add to cart. Uh, so what is that supply chain? According to Statista, is that how you pronounce it? Statista? Uh, Statista? Statista? I don't know. Anyways, Statistics, Google it. <laughs> uh, Amazon made up about 14% of e-commerce in 2019. That's a big share of the market. Yeah. And Amazon only keeps popular items in their inventory at their warehouses, which, which is about half of their orders. I think everybody's seen, you know, you've had an order come from a third-party supplier. That means what you're buying might be a little more unique and uh, not in as high demand. So the supply chain, you've got your raw materials, your natural resources. It goes to the suppliers. Then it goes to the manufacturers. Whatever you want gets made. Uh, then it gets sent to the fulfillment and distribution centers. So these are the warehouses that you're seeing um, all over the country. Amazon is building them everywhere, as, as are all of the logistic companies. Uh, so that's where your shipment's going to come out of, and then it gets delivered to you as the consumer. Um, so internationally, when things are getting shipped, whether it's from materials to suppliers, suppliers to manufacturers, so on and so forth, if it goes international, you basically have two options, right? I think that's pretty, pretty straightforward, ship mm -hmm. or plane. Uh, obviously, mm -hmm. ship, shipping across the ocean is more economical, but an airplane um, is used for some of those critical items uh, like medicine, for example. And then domestically, there's several ways that your goods get around. Rail and truck are probably the primary sources. And sometimes they use planes depending on the type of cargo and whether or not time is of the essence. So with all of this growing e-commerce, you know, we, we as planners kind of want to think about what are the potential implications to the public? With, with more traffic on the roadways, more freight traffic on the roadways, what does that do to our speed of deliveries? Uh, I think that these um, 
retailers are trying to find ways to become more and more efficient to get your goods on time, such as groceries, right? You've, you have to get those to the consumer as quickly as possible, especially for frozen or refrigerated items. And then uh, think about the toilet paper and paper towels shortage. It wasn't that there weren't the materials and, and they weren't being manufactured. The issue came in that supply chain of shipping them from the suppliers and manufacturers to the distribution warehousing facilities. And that became a critical issue for, I think, all of us worrying that we weren't going to have our paper products. <laughs> God forbid. <laughs> I mean, well, we really do need some of those paper products more than others. Uh, just as a side note, my dad suggested yeah. cutting up old dish towels if we didn't, if we ran out of toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> I could tell a very... Very inappropriate story from my grandmother when she was 94, but I'm going to let that one we'll go. We'll save that for the Modern Mobility After Hours episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'll be for the bloopers reel. Oh, that'll be the bloopers reel. It's bad. We'll save that. <laughs> but in addition to that, when you when you have this growing economy, this this e-commerce, what does that mean for safety on your roadways uh, when you have more trucks um, you've got at at grade railroad crossings with uh longer and more frequent trains, and uh, as well as as truck parking, and also thinking about the hours of service regulations that truck drivers have. So in most cases, truck drivers cannot drive more than eleven hours within their fourteen hours of on duty, and once the clock starts, they can't stop it. So. That 14 hours has to be consistent. They can't they can't work for six hours and then stop the clock for 30 and then pick back up. It's it's 14 hours con consistent. And so if those drivers can't find parking, which in a lot of urban areas, it's very difficult. They park on the side of the road or they park on an entrance ramp. They really park wherever they can find that they feel they are providing the best safety. At least that's what we hope. Right. But. The, yeah. the truth is that when you have trucks parked on the side of the road, uh, it inhibits your ability to see around them um, and can really cause some safety concerns. But, you know, this this good shipment is the backbone of the economy. So how do we as planners and what is our role to provide the necessary infrastructure for to support the e-commerce while also maintaining or increasing the safety of all of the users of the transportation network. So we want to identify and evaluate projects that improve safety and efficiency of moving goods. So when we come up with evaluation frameworks, we want to make sure that we have both safety and efficiency performance measures included in that evaluation and weigh them appropriately. And a lot of times that weighing comes uh, with uh, feedback from the community of which we're planning for. And if I could just interject here for our listener, <laughs> our listener, <laughs> assuming we only have one, we could have more. Um, for those that are enthusiasts and not necessarily transportation planners listening in, just wanted to clarify that when we talk about evaluation frameworks, we're referring to how we prioritize transportation projects for funding. Yes. So, Thank you. Ahead. Thank you, Kelly. 
I try not to get too much into the lingo, but sometimes I just I slip right into it. Well, it makes me think of have you ever okay, I'm gonna have to digress here for a minute. Have you ever heard the podcast Smart Less? No. With uh Jason Bateman <laughs> and Sean Hayes and Will Arnett. It is hilarious, but they're always talking about hold on, we have to explain what this means for our listener, which is um Sean Hayes' sister, like out in Minnesota <laughs> or something. Well, we've got a caller from Minnesota. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Um, so, yeah. So improving the safety <laughs> of the people around the trucks, but also uh, providing reliable travel times for the drivers. That's that's the balance we try to strike. So, Kelly, we kind of talked about it, but you said you're receiving how many shipments from Amazon a week? A week? Honestly speaking, like no joke. I probably receive at least five a week, maybe seven or eight, and sometimes 10. It depends on what's going on. And that is just Amazon. So let's not forget our, because I get like my, I've actually on subscriptions now where I get my dish soap automatically refill, you know, all those little staples. And they just show up out of the blue and I forget that I even had them on there. Now all of a sudden I've got 5 million dish soaps. But also let's not forget that, um, what about if you're ordering Uber Eats? That's goods too, right? You're having something, you're having food brought to your house for dinner. We do that, you know, once a week or so. It used to be more. and we have our groceries delivered because I hate grocery shopping. So that's at least once a week too. So when we talk about movement of goods, it's not just these 18 wheelers, tractor trailers, you know, or even the, the Amazon vans. It's also these smaller goods that we also have to think about, especially in the urban environment. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I get that many a week. <laughs> But there's also less people in my house. So mm -hmm. that probably has something to do with it. And we do go to the grocery store because now that's the only time we really get out of our house, which is really sad. That's, Hopefully that that'll be changing sad. soon. <laughs> now, if I can go to the grocery store without my kids, oh, it's on. But, the, you know, because then that's like a treat. Yeah. See, we take, we take turns. Happen. So I only have to go twice a month. But anyways, again, we digress. Okay. okay. All, right. All right. So, Kelly. Let's talk about the 14 steps to planning for rapidly increasing e-commerce. All right. Number one, understand where your current and planned freight generators are. So freight generators can include manufacturing. Um, so that's like, you know, say you're a flooring manufacturer. Um, you know, I'm thinking of North Georgia and Dalton where you have all the carpet and flooring manufacturers. Uh, Kirsten mentioned your fulfillment and distribution centers. That's, you know, Amazon and others, your shippers. So that's like your UPS and FedEx. And then there's authorized truck parking locations. Like we were talking about earlier, what Kirsten was talking about was unauthorized truck parking, which is where they kind of have to park once their clock runs out if they can't find truck parking. So authorized truck parking is where they're, you know, think about your truck stops, like your flying J's or your pilots or your loves. Um, there's also way stations along the interstate uh, where parking is available for trucks. You know, your rest areas, there's often a set aside for truck parking spaces. And then you have other freight generators like your ports, your rail yards, your airport cargo terminals, intermodal transfer centers. So there's all these freight generators. 
And you need to know where those are currently and if possible, where they are planned in the future. Uh, And so you can get that data from your city and county land use data, uh, as well as planned developments in Georgia. We have developments of regional impact, DRI, so you can get it from there. Uh, Your state Department of Transportation will also have a lot of information as well. One thing we've found with freight data is that it's usually cobbling together a variety of data sources throughout the way. So it's that's always a little bit of a challenge. Step number two is to inventory your current truck parking locations and identify truck parking deserts. So um, again, you have your authorized truck parking locations, but within authorized you have your public versus your private. So your public could be, for instance, the ones at the rest areas, the way stations, and those are typically free. And then you may have paid truck parking uh, that might have more amenities and stuff at your, you know, private truck stops and stuff like that. Again, your flying J's and loves and all that. So you can get the information for where to find the public um, lot or public truck parking locations from typically your state DOTs. Also, uh, Federal Highway Administration has just released a few months ago an update to what's called the Jason's Law survey data. And you can find that at opsops.fhwa.dot.gov forward slash freight forward slash infrastructure forward slash truck parking forward slash Jason's Law. And so <laughs> just on. it'll be in the show notes. Just Google just Google notes. Jason's Law survey data. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Much easier. So um and so knowing where your current truck parking is, is really important so that you can also figure out where the need is as well. So we mentioned the public truck parking for private truck parking. You can also find it on truck parking apps and websites like Trucker Path or Truck Parking USA. And then for determining what your demand is for truck parking based on, you know, the traffic that's out there and the generators and, and all that, there's Federal Highway Administration has a truck parking demand model. Now, mind you, it's almost 20 years old. So, but at least it gives you a high level starting point if you're not wanting to invest too much resources, but you just need, you know, sanctified model or sanctioned model that, you know, you can use. And so that you can find at fhwa.dot.gov and search for truck parking demand model. I have the full link in the show notes. There's also other resources from Federal Highway Freight Office. I gave the link for that earlier. The Federal Highway Administration National Coalition on Truck Parking has a lot of great resources. And over here on the Eastern Coast, the Eastern Transportation Coalition, formerly known as I-95 Corridor Coalition, they've got a lot of good truck parking information as well. And their website is tetcoalition.org. So so those will um, give you a really good start on some resources. Step three is to consider tax incentives to attract truck parking facilities. So, you know, we talked about, okay, knowing where you have truck parking, knowing what the demand is, and now that you know what your demand is, identifying those as maybe truck parking opportunity areas or opportunity zones or truck parking deserts, whatever you want to call them, 
And then you could potentially ask for tax incentives at the city or county level. States are also considering that. I know there's been some discussion here in Georgia on that. But um, obviously, if you're, say, you know, a planner at the regional or local level, you're not going to be able to, the state legislature is going to be the ones dealing with a state tax credit, but you can look at tax credits for your city or county per se. Uh, you can also make arrangements for emergency truck parking during pandemics, um, for instance. And so fairgrounds and farmers markets and stuff like that, stadiums, all that, you can actually make an arrangement in advance where you have a rental agreement with them that says, okay, in the event of a pandemic, you guys will will pay X amount of dollars per day for us to be able to use this for truck parking. Uh, and so that's something else that you could look at doing. Um, that uh, that would have been nice during the snowpocalypse, right? Had they had uh, those agreements. No. I know. <laughs> for the, Tell me for, about For it. that listener. That's in Minnesota that do- <laughs> that doesn't know about our woes of ice and snow in the southeast. Uh, we had oh hundreds, it, thousands, thousands of thousands. trucks stranded on our interstate system in Metro Atlanta. Yeah. What was that? Twenty fourteen. Yeah, yeah. Twenty fourteen. It was. Yes, it was. And I was I was stranded on the way. I couldn't even get my son. My son was two then, and I actually had to. It was so bad. I couldn't even get to the daycare. I was stranded on the side of the road. He had to stay in daycare overnight. Yeah. With it was like 20 other students. It was a mess. Oh, yeah. It was crazy. So, yeah, it was a mess. Plan. That's what happens when we get plan, people. two inches of snow in Atlanta. <laughs> the whole city shuts down. <sighs> people are sleeping in the Home Depot. It was bad. Anyways. Yeah, it was. So, um, all right. Step four. Another um, potential solution for truck parking is to consider different technologies, particularly those related to truck parking detection and dissemination. So detection technologies would be technologies where you could tell if there's truck parking available. So whether it's sensors that are in the ground or radar or laser infrared or Bluetooth, whether there's cameras or license plate recognition systems. So that would be your on-site parking detection technologies. And on the flip side of that, once you know how much parking you have available, then you need to communicate that to the truck drivers, right? So then there's communication technologies. That's the dissemination of the information. So there's truck parking information systems. There's your dynamic messaging signs. So those are like those. Think about it when you go to the airport. I know like here in Atlanta, you go to the airport to the parking deck and it tells you how many spaces are available versus full you know, it's a similar thing. You could have that on dynamic message signs for truck parking a few miles down the road or or the next truck parking site. So and then also mobile applications and in-cab systems and websites for truckers. But the the dynamic messaging signs are nice because it doesn't force the truckers to look down at their phone. Right. So, you know, we want to avoid that as much as we can. Step five is to consider repurposing or expanding truck parking within existing right-of-way. So first, let me explain what right-of-way is. So right-of-way is essentially property that is owned by, you know, in, in most instances, the State Department of Transportation or the city or the county. And it's usually, you know, a sliver of land along a roadway in most cases, in order to account for utilities and all that 
extra stuff or if they are going to, you know, need more pavement at some point, et cetera. So this is, to be honest with you, the use of right away for truck parking has its pros and its cons. Uh, there's a debate as to whether public agencies should even get into the business of providing truck parking as opposed to just providing state tax incentives um, and letting the private sector do its thing. It really depends a lot on the political climate of your state and the return on investment that the you're going to get for putting money into the parking and how many parking spaces are you really going to get out of it. So um, it's something that you would want to look at closely. You know, potential locations within the right-of-way could be visitor welcome centers. Those are publicly owned, typically. Rest areas and way stations, park and ride lots, um, and then even vacant parcels. Now, with park and ride lots, if there's any funding used by the Federal Transit Administration to construct or repurpose that park and ride lot, then you may be prohibited from for using it for trucks. So just keep that in mind. But you can expand, you know, current truck parking to include more spaces or repurpose some of the passenger vehicle spaces to to trucks or even build brand new truck parking. And and that's something that, you know, we've looked at for some of our clients as well. Uh, but it can admittedly, it can get pretty involved. Um, but really, my word of caution is there's there's three things that's kind of driving that. If, is there a return on investment? What's the political climate? And, you know, recognizing that there's private company competition. If the public goes in and starts building free parking in their, if it is free, free parking on their property, that provides competition for the private sector. And is that what they really want to do? So there's that, you know, just keep that in mind. This could be a podcast episode in and of itself. And we could even invite like some DOT guests from different states. But I can tell you, I know exactly who I'd want to invite, but I'm not going to say it here because I'm not going to put them on blast. But I think that there's some folks that are out there that we've worked with that are doing some really neat things and pushing the envelope, but um, rooted in reality. So I, I think, anyway, that's a whole nother topic for another day. We'll add it to the docket. <laughs> I know, right? We are getting requests. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we've gotten one. Okay, so... <laughs> All right. So the next step, what am I on? Step six? Is that what I'm on? Yes. Six. Yes. Six. Okay. Um, so evaluate uh, pavement conditions and resurfacing schedules for freight corridors. So uh, you want to designate freight corridors if possible. And that's actually step seven that I'll get into in a minute. But, you know, the pavement or resurfacing of roads is typically done, you know, every certain amount of years based on the budget that's available for a city, county, or state. Okay. So it could be every 12 years. It could be every eight to 10. What do you think, Kirsten? What do you think how, in reality, is it more like 15? You know, I think it depends on how much money they have and how much road laneage they got. I mean, I know that I know that there are there are goals, especially for uh, routes on the national highway system. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. I think, you know, in a lot of cases due to budgetary constraints or just, uh, you know, I, I, I would say that that's probably the primary one. I 20 years in a lot of cases. Yeah. yeah. And so 
And I know just driving around here, geez, I, I've already hit a pothole before in my old car and had to replace all four new tires. It was just a disaster. And so there is a cost to, you know, travelers um, driving on poorly conditioned, poor conditioned roadways. Uh, but anyway, so freight or trucks, they frankly are have more wear and tear on the road. So if you know that a corridor is going to be more heavily traveled by trucks than compared to other corridors, then we would recommend that you put that corridor on a more frequent resurfacing schedule and maybe even consider concrete as opposed to asphalt. Yeah. I I think, you know, in a lot of cases um, where there is heavy freight, it's it it might be worth the extra cost to go with the concrete over asphalt just because of the lifespan. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay. so I also mentioned designating freight corridors. So step number seven is to designate freight corridors and or clusters. So, you know, based on a bunch of GIS, geographic information system mapping data. Uh, different layers, whether it's the freight generators um, and other networks available and truck volumes and all kinds of stuff, you can designate freight corridors and clusters and then focus your land use decisions and your transportation investments that impact freight along those corridors and in those clusters. And then step eight is to include those freight corridors and clusters in the project evaluation and prioritization framework. So Remember earlier when I explained to our listener in Minnesota, <laughs> project evaluation and prioritization uh, deals with, you know, prioritizing how do we evaluate projects to determine that they should receive funding over other projects. And so we develop pretty robust evaluation and prioritization frameworks and score projects a lot of times based on different criteria. So whether or not a freight project falls on a freight corridor in a freight cluster, those projects could get higher scores and rank higher if that's something deemed appropriate for your area. And so what type of projects are we even talking about? So step nine talks about developing projects or policies that improve those last 50 feet of parcel deliveries in your urban cores. So that's like in your downtown Main Street areas. And you've got Amazon or the post office or UPS trucks all over, you know, double park, blocking lanes, trying to deliver, right? So we're going to have a whole separate episode about curbside management later in the season that uh, deals a lot with that. Uh, but some of the things, you know, to to deal with or that cause the issues of double parking of trucks on the sidewalks is because they ha- they don't have a lo- uh, loading zone. I've seen UPS trucks actually on fully on the sidewalk before, which is scary, like all four wheels. Uh, and the length of time that the drivers have to walk from their truck to make the delivery has a major collective impact on their time, which has a significant impact on the cost of that delivery. So the more that we can reduce that time, the more efficient they can be, the less traffic there will be, the less idling emissions there will be, the more cost effective and better for our economy it will be. Building operations in these downtown areas often have more of an impact than anything else. 
So, for instance, if they have to go to all these different floors to make all these deliveries in a high-rise tower, that's going to take them a lot longer than, for instance, if there was parcel lockers. Like in our building, they just put parcel lockers in, and that's where they put all the deliveries now, and they just go to one place. Kind of a pain for us now. We don't get sweet service, but whatever. Um, (laughs) And uh, commercial loading zones, you know, uh, there's potential for flex uses by time of day. Again, we'll get into that in the curbside management uh, episode. And then you could even have curbside occupancy sensors and then communicate that parking availability and in, in apps and stuff. So you want to develop projects or policies that are also going to improve travel time reliability. So if a trucker knows, okay, I know it's going to be highly congested, but I know it's going to take me two hours to get from point A to point B. That is better for them than if they don't know exactly how long it's going to take and they have to leave much earlier and then they're sitting there waiting. So, you know, they need to be able to time things. So that travel time reliability is really important for truckers. So one of the types of projects that you can look at is related to intelligent transportation systems and talking about freight signal priority or truck signal priority. So giving extra green time to get trucks through intersections, uh, you know, during off-peak hours to incentivize those trucks to use those corridors when it's not so heavy in traffic. Uh, We talked a little bit about truck parking and detection and dissemination technologies. Raised medians is another potential solution. So to avoid those head-on collisions or distracted driving, you don't want to run hit head first into, or, you know, uh, front first into head-on collision with a truck. Intersection improvements that deal with your turning radii, you know, those tight turns for trucks and giving them more um, space to turn. There's commercial vehicle lanes that are being looked at. So those are those truck-only lanes that are being looked at in different areas here in Georgia as well. And then there's, uh, you know, Kirsten mentioned earlier about having longer trains. We're also having more double stack trains. And so that makes them higher. And being able to get them underneath the bridges that go over the railroads is important. So do we have bridges that don't have what we call vertical clearance, but don't have enough space to get double stack trains through? And if so, do we want to look at raising those or replacing them? And it's similarly, even over water near ports, are there bridges over the water that don't have enough vertical clearance or in, in bridges over water? It's called air draft. But from that, that amount of space from the top of the water to underneath the bridge is that these ships are getting so much bigger, like astronomically bigger. I mean, there was that one that just got stuck. Yeah. Right, Kirsten? Yeah. Oh, my God. And they had the one little the excavator. Su- <laughs> yeah. And the Suez Canal. I mean, this thing. Lord, how many, do you know how many days that thing was stuck? Was it like five days or something? I don't. I mean, if they were going to use that excavator, it was going to take a while. (laughs) It took them several days to get that bad boy out. Let me tell you. So um, just like you can get stuck on the width or the length, you can also get stuck on the height. And ships have hit bridges before. And it's a major safety issue for those cars driving over the bridge, as well as the people on the show. Yeah, I mean, you talk about all of these in this step, providing truck travel time or freight travel time reliability. But a lot of these have to do with safety, too, like racing the medians and intersection improvements. 
commercial vehicle lanes to separate, you know, your automobiles from your commercial vehicles. So I just want to make sure that we're hitting back on the balance between safety and efficiency. Yeah, I agree. And then step 11, which we really already talked about, was identifying obstacles and solutions to moving larger amounts of cargo. So that's the double stacking of trains and the impact on bridges and looking at are there bridges that have low vertical clearance that we can make improvements to to allow a more efficient movement of freight along the rail lines. And similarly with the the bridges for ships. So, you know, we already talked a lot about that. Step 12 is evaluate the congestion of the roads surrounding the airport cargo areas. So we mentioned how, you know, the international and some domestic as well cargo will come through the airport. So according to the U.S. Department of Transportation Bureau of Transportation Statistics, air cargo was up 13 percent in January 2021 compared to January 2020, pre-COVID. And that's about 12% domestic and 15% international. So Uh, how much do you think that has to do with vaccinations? I don't know. That is a good question. I don't know. I'm just thinking about the timing and and that increase, you know, because shipping via air is not not cheap. So it has to be high demand, high priority items. That's that's what I would assume. So and we know they had to stay refrigerated. Yep. Yeah. Anyways, so just just yeah, a thought, yeah. just wondering. Yeah. No, that's a good point. And so making sure that there is access and staging for trucks coming and going to those air cargo areas is important. So, you know, truckers have to show up at a certain window of time. And if they're too early, they have to sit there and wait until their window of time to get their delivery or drop it off. So making sure that there's a place for them to park, which is, you know, that staging is important, as well as, you know, looking at the congestion surrounding the airport, if there's some access issues that need to be looked at as well. And then, you know, there's the employees working at these locations and making sure that there's transit access for them as well. And then step 13 is conduct scenario planning. So we always like to look at different what if scenarios, you know, so that we're not working in a vacuum. So, you know, look at the impact on the infrastructure. If, say, for instance, more cargo that arrived by ship decided to transfer to rail instead of trucks, because that is something that, you know, a lot of the ports are looking at is trying to increase the amount of cargo that ships or transfers over to rail. And so what is the impact on our infrastructure whether it's roads or rail or otherwise. And then what happens if e-commerce goes up even more? So what I always like to say is when you do these what-if scenarios, the bottom line is is you can only invest in so much and you don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole of investing in one scenario, right? So invest in projects that would be necessary regardless, right? You know, if there's, you know, projects that you know, no matter what scenario you have, you need to do it, then prioritize those first, right? Uh, And then step number 14, last but not least, is to consider creating a grant program for matching funds for those freight cluster or corridor plans or projects. So 
Remember earlier we mentioned the freight cluster um, and freight routes. And so what you could do, for instance, if you're a metropolitan planning organization, and I know, um, you know, the Atlanta MPO here does it, where they have a freight cluster plan program where project sponsors like cities or counties or otherwise can apply for funds that they've set aside for freight cluster plans that fall within those identified freight clusters. You could take it further and even look at setting aside funding for projects to implement within those freight clusters that benefit freight or along freight corridors that benefit freight. So those are our 14 steps. I'm going to recap real quick. So step one is always know what you have, understand where the current and planned freight generators are. Step two, inventory current truck parking locations and identify truck parking deserts. Step three, consider tax incentives to attract truck parking facilities and truck parking deserts. Uh, Again, those are mostly going to be city and county. Uh, Step four, consider truck parking detection and dissemination technologies. Step five, consider repurposing or expanding truck parking with an existing right-of-way. Step six, evaluate pavement conditions and resurfacing schedules for freight corridors. Step seven, designate freight corridors and or clusters to focus land use decisions and transportation investments. Step eight, include freight corridors and or clusters in the project evaluation and prioritization framework. Step nine, develop projects or policies that improve the last 50 feet of parcel deliveries and urban cores. Step 10, develop projects or policies to improve travel time reliability. Step 11, identify obstacles and solutions to moving larger amounts of cargo. Step 12, evaluate congestion of roads surrounding airport cargo areas and ensure transit access for employees. Step 13, conduct scenario planning, looking at the impact on infrastructure of more cargo arriving by ship, transferred to rail instead of trucks, for example. Step 14, create a grant program or consider creating a grant program for matching funds for freight cluster or corridor plans or projects. Whew. <laughs> I know. Uh, so, I mean, I think I think what this goes to show is there's there's a lot to think about when it comes to freight transportation, impl- implications to the public, implications to the infrastructure network. How do you prioritize these things? So, Kelly, I have two questions for you. You want the soft okay. you want the softball or you want the more difficult question first? I want the doozy first. OK. <laughs> How do you tell communities that, no, let me rephrase the question. Most residential communities and people, people want, you know, high quality of life and they do Mm. not want trucks in their neighborhoods, on their local streets. Right. So how do you integrate that feedback from your communities during your outreach process and balance their concerns about f- freight in their community and the need for freight improvements. Well, I really just think you want me to solve world peace. <laughs> 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 but <laughs> it's a good question. It's one that comes up all the time um, in our industry. And I would say there's not a silver bullet here, but I think one, educating the public on what it takes to get them their instant gratification of goods or even just their toilet paper to the grocery store. 
is part of it. And so there's an education piece. Another part of it is coming up with solutions that can incentivize trucks to use certain corridors so that you're they're not going through the residential neighborhoods unless there's an actual delivery in that neighborhood. And if there's a delivery in that neighborhood, it's an Amazon van or a UPS truck and not a big old tractor trailer, right? Because I think the residential areas, they just don't want tractor trailer noisy trucks and big trucks that are unsafe coming through, right? And I also think that, you know, part of that is the technology of the trucks themselves as well, improving over time. So, you know, with electric trucks over time, you know, you won't have as much air pollution. I don't know if they'll be quieter or not. I don't know or not, but so that will help too. But I think education and then incentivizing trucks to use certain corridors or areas and even better if possible, not always possible during certain times when it's not quite as busy. That's not always possible. So yeah. that's the best I got for that. <laughs> it's right it's now. it's a difficult you know? question and it's it's one that's gonna come up if you are planning for freight improvements. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's something that you're going to run into. Uh, you know, you talked about creating tax incentives through cities or counties. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a lot of political yeah, uh, buffer to kind of get through to get something like yeah. that passed when their constituents are really not not happy and very concerned about additional freight. The other thing that I'll add to it is I would highly encourage communities to also be investing in pedestrian and bicycle infrastructure. Because I think the more, I think a lot of the concern comes from safety. And if certain communities don't have the adequate sidewalks, bike lanes, multi-use paths, whatever it is, then that only increases their concern for their safety if they're having to walk alongside the road. So providing that separation through sidewalks. Yeah. Which, you know, in the relative scheme of things is um, way less expensive. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. and something that can be achievable for, for cities and counties. Yeah. Okay. Good so I'll go, I'll, now I'll go to the softball question. So out of the 14 uh. steps, which one mm-hmm. of these do you think is going to be the most challenging? I think that step number five about potentially using right away for truck parking I think some states have more of an appetite for it than others. And so I think it's great if you can do it, but there's just a lot of, a lot of, um, variables under, you know, the political appetite, the private competition, you know, the return on investment. So just if you are going to do it, you need to make sure that You've got all your ducks in a row and it has the potential to be a low cost solution. And in, for some cases for a lot more spaces, but if you can only get a few spaces out of it, sometimes it's not worth it. Yeah. Okay. So. Final question. And I just came yeah. up with this one. So I don't know if it's a, if it's a softball, or if it's going to be a doozy. Uh, we'll see. So with the new administration, I think we're kind of seeing a shift in transportation priorities, Mm -hmm. whereas with the last administration, at least through the federal competitive grants, um, freight was a very high priority. It seems like that might be shifting and the priorities might be more towards livability, transit access, multimodal, 
air quality, climate change kind of thing. So what kind of impact or what kind of uh, changes in funding for federal projects do you see coming over the next few years? Well, I think that I think you have a point, but I don't think that freight money is going to go away. As a matter of fact, you know, one of the initiatives of the new administration is economic recovery. And as you mentioned earlier, freight is the backbone of the economy. So, you know, having jobs at these manufacturers and distribution centers and the truckers and all of that is part of the solution to the economic recovery. And so also one of the national initiatives or priorities is the environment, right? So climate change. Well, if trucks are sitting there idling in traffic, uh, that is not good for the air. And so anything that we can do to reduce delay and improve efficiency for trucks um, will also help the environment. So I think part of it is the messaging when you're going out for different funding categories or funding opportunities, messaging how your freight project is going to help with the economic recovery and help with the environment. All right. Great advice. Yeah. Great advice. Yeah. Um. And I just came up with it. <laughs> See, but that's what makes you a national expert. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Well, thanks, everybody, for tuning in, our one listener in Minnesota. We hope you found your yeah. time well spent and that you learned something. You can download our free cheat sheet with all of the steps from today at our website at modernmobilitypartners.com. And stay tuned for our next episode where we talk about steps to preparing a successful U.S. DOT infra or build grant application, which is what we were just referring to. So at some point, we will start interviewing folks that have done some innovative stuff to address these type of challenges. So if you're interested, please let us know. You can find us at modernmobilitypartners.com. And don't forget to subscribe and even better, review our podcasts. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to your podcast. Kelly, over and out. All righty. Thank you for tuning in to Modern Mobility. If you work for an organization that has implemented innovative and practical solutions to modern day transportation challenges and are interested in being on our podcast, email us at podcast at modernmobilitypartners.com. Want to learn more about our consulting services? Check us out at modernmobilitypartners.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast.